Thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout from the Hagley Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. And in the Hagley History Hangout, we like to bring to you some of the most innovative research being done out of the Hagley collections, um, especially by researchers who have received support from the Hagley Center for their work. And I'm being joined today by Kevin Bunch, uh, one such researcher who in his day job is a writer and communications specialist at the International Joint Commission, which in case you didn't know, is among the largest, uh, uh, largest transnational water management projects in world history. Um, but in his spare time, Kevin conducts research into the early history of video games and computers, uh, for which he has received support from the Hagley Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society. And um, one of the things that Kevin is really interested in, and I hope we can talk to him about today, is the deeper stories of commercial failures, or some of those makers of video games that didn't make it, but can nevertheless teach us a lot about the history. Uh, Kevin, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. This is, should be a lot of fun. Well, that's great. Well, why don't you start with your project? Could you tell us a little bit more about your research? Yeah, so I'm interested in looking into RCA's history with uh, video games and you know commu computers more broadly. Um, it, so for those unaware, in 1977, RCA published a, a video game home console called the Studio 2. Uh, it was not a commercial success. Uh, that same year, they also put out a hobbyist computer called the Cosmac VIP uh, that was slightly better received. <laughs> uh, in either case, they were both kind of just you know blips on the broader uh, you know tapestry of video game history and in the industry. But uh, I found them very interesting because you know up until you know, a few years ago, not a lot was really known about them other than the fact that. Uh, Oh, RCA put them out and they're not very good. <laughs> and, you know, I figured there was more to the story than that. And turns out there's quite a bit. <laughs> well, why, why video games? Why is that uh, your angle on history? Uh, so that's something I've been interested in since I was a kid, honestly. I remember mm -hmm. going to our public library and there was this old book about video games from like 1982 or so mm -hmm. uh, and I remember checking it out and reading it and I'm like wow I've never heard of any of this stuff and there was some like <laughs> brief uh, history portions of it too uh, that was even more intriguing to me so you know as soon as the internet came along I started you know, poking <laughs> around with uh, the folks who were already doing that kind of research and you know eventually it just sort of escalated and I started doing it myself <laughs> <laughs> And that led you to uh, the Hagley Library. Uh, it did. Uh, so I'm originally from Michigan, but you know, when I took the job at the IJC, I moved out to Maryland, which is significantly closer to Delaware. <laughs> uh, and I had heard from some other folks who were interested in RCA that uh, you know the Hagley Library had gotten all of these uh, documents from the old Sarnoff Library. Uh, and there was probably some interesting stuff in there. Uh, so, you know, a few months into living out here, uh, made my <laughs> way out there and turns out, uh, well, first, uh, the first time I went out there, uh, the library was closed mm. because of an event. Uh, but the second time was very, very productive. 
<laughs> uh, and then I've made a few more trips since, uh, culminating in the uh, you know research grant that I got from you folks uh, last year. So I got to spend a week out there, which was very informative. And that's great. So you've been in the RCA collections then? Uh, yeah, uh, in and out. And what document or series of sources have you found just the most exciting or unexpected? Uh, so for me, I think that might be the materials uh, on RCA's uh, arcade machine project. Mm. Um, uh-huh. Most of those were in the Billy Joe Call papers. Uh, there was a couple uh, things about it in the Joe Weisbecker ones as well. But uh, basically around 74, 75, uh, they got the idea that, oh, we have these uh, 1801 microprocessors now. They, they've been working on this for a few years and they should do something with it. Uh, Joe Weisbecker was really interested in video games, you know, from, you know, before there were video games, basically. Uh, <laughs> So he really wanted to do like an arcade machine. Uh, so him and uh, Billy Joe sort of worked on this as a project. They, and according to the documentation, they built, uh, uh, I think, six of them. Uh, they had them set up in different areas. Uh, in your collection, you actually have photos that Joe Weisbecker took at an arcade in uh, Pennsylvania. Hmm. Uh, his mm-hmm. daughter identified you know, what was going on in that for me. Uh-huh. She's a huge help. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, so they did these location tests, uh, apparently they did not go well. <laughs> uh, so they just sort of dropped it and moved to working on like the studio two home system. Mm-hmm. But the arcade machine is really interesting because it has a lot of innovations that you didn't really see in uh, 1975. Like it used a microprocessor, like the first mm. arcade games that had those didn't debut until the end of 75. Mm. Uh, it also had like interchangeable uh games so like you had your you had your main game board that was you know where the microprocessor and all the hardware lived and then you could swap out uh the actual game uh rom file uh base i can't exactly tell based on the paperwork if it was like a just a little daughter board or if it was a cartridge like you'd know it today Mm -hmm. but either way uh that's something that you really didn't see for years and years until after RCA was fiddling with this. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, you folks also ended up having uh, quite a few cassettes in your collection. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's actually one of the first things that like drew my attention was looking at the labels on these on your website. It's like, huh, that one says coin arcade on it. I wonder. Uh-huh. So uh, I worked with your folks to get those digitized and I worked with some other I worked with a uh, former RCA programmer, uh, Andy Modla, a uh, fellow out in Europe, uh, Marcel Van Tongeren, to get mm-hmm. like emulation working for the mm-hmm. arcade uh, boards in the first place based on the schematics that uh, are at Hagley. And we got those games working again, and one can conceivably go online and play them. That's fantastic. And this is from uh, cassettes of magnetic tape. Yes, uh, these were like data tapes that they used in the 1970s to record uh, programs, mm-hmm. which is also something fun that uh, the RCA engineers were pro- like testing out. Uh, so before the arcade machine, they had FRED, which was the uh, 
it was Joe Weisbecker's prototype home computer, basically, that he built in his basement around 71. Mm -hmm. uh, and he wanted to make that, you know, something that uh, more people could actually use. So once RCA, you know, ran away from the computer business, he pitched this to the folks that he worked with. They're like, hey, you know, we could do this. You could use it for games or, you know, industrial uses or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, they agreed to it as long as no one would call it a computer uh, <laughs> when discussing it with upper management because it was apparently a very sensitive topic. Mm. <laughs> uh, and yeah, originally everything was on uh, punch cards. Uh, but yeah. early on, they developed a uh, like a standard way to read and save data to cassette tapes hmm. and so you know all sorts of uh cassettes uh, in your collection and in the college of new jersey's uh, sarnoff collection mm -hmm. those have all been uh digitized and at least the ones that work still <laughs> uh and the contents have been you know decoded and it's a lot of really cool like rich peaks into the early history of uh computing and games mm -hmm. in general mm -hmm. Yeah, that be. I was gonna say it might be one of the most robust uh, like histories for a company of its era. Mm. Well, and it sounds like um, they were quite ahead of the curve technically. What was it that uh, caused them to struggle commercially? Um, did the games lack appeal from the consumer perspective, or um, what other reason have you might have found? Um, so, according to the memos in the collection there uh mm -hmm. they they sold approximately uh something like 53 to 64,000 uh units in 1977 mm -hmm. which you know doesn't sound that bad uh, except when you take into account that its competitors each sold you know around 200,000 units mm -hmm. so that was Fairchild and Atari at the time I see so the games itself I played you know, there's 1977 lineups on all three of those, and they're all about, you know, what you'd expect. They're, hmm. I don't think any of them are dramatically better than the others. Uh, but uh, you know, the Studio 2 had a few things working against it. Uh, first mm -hmm. off, uh, so the main uh, marketing uh, muscle for RCA was not behind this. Uh, that mm -hmm. department did not pick it up, so it ended up going to the... Uh, special products and distribution division which you know that that's the part of the company that would sell tv antennas and like accessories like that i see so that was a much smaller part of the company and they had much less of a commercial footprint so it already had that working against it management mm -hmm. uh, didn't seem to be super into it in the first place which is probably why it ended up there uh I think uh, some of the other issues it had is that it's a black and white uh, game, hmm. uh, not a color one. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess part of this was, according to the folks I've interviewed, uh, Joe Weisbecker was not interested in color. He thought it was uh, a gimmick. He didn't think a good game needed it. Hmm. So he did not push hard for it until after Fairchild you know, put out their channel f system and it had full color and everyone at rca is like well shoot we have to follow what they're doing <laughs> so then they ended up sort of playing catch up there and it's a little bit of a mess uh, and i think the other big thing that uh, hurt their chances was the fcc 
because hmm. at the time the FCC was very stringent about uh, you know getting approval for home game systems, and it didn't just trip up RCA; it tripped up a lot of uh, other companies too. <clears throat> well, what sort of regulatory uh, hurdles did they erect? Uh, so it was around uh, like the radio uh, frequency emissions, uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, ostensibly radiation. Uh, they didn't know what was a safe level and how much would like impact the functioning of TVs. So they just set the limits very, very high. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, around 79, 1980, they lowered those dramatically. So it was easier for companies to meet it but Hmm. you know so rca had planned to get the studio two out before christmas of 76 Hmm. Uh, functionally it didn't start making it out into stores until february of 1977 and even then uh it didn't really get a full national rollout until around june uh from what i can tell uh you could and you kind of see this with the other companies like fairchild had planned a much bigger release for the channel f and that didn't make it out until like right after Thanksgiving in 76 mm. and they uh-huh. barely had time to produce anything. So. And, uh, and, and that's so such contrast with today where we think of uh, video game companies as real uh, behemoths of marketing and distribution. Yeah, that was not so much the case. Like, you know, RCA <laughs> was a behemoth, but RCA had, you know, a lot of other things going on at the time. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, no, but the only company that did well there was Atari because they had Sears behind them and Sears was a big hmm. myth and you know, knew how the FCC worked. They were hmm. able to sort of grease the wheels there. Uh, no such luck for RCA. <laughs> uh, and also connect directly with retail customers, which... Yeah. Um, RCA had their family stores, which they did sell you know, the Studio 2 through. Uh-huh. Um, but as far as I can tell, like... Yeah, it was in other storefronts, but uh, I don't think it had quite the same level of traction as the other companies did. Mm-hmm. It, it's a weird system in a few other ways, too. Like, um, instead of having you know any kind of actual audio capabilities, it just has a beeper, basically, like a <laughs> piezo beeper. Huh? Uh, so you get a nice squelching sound whenever you're doing anything. <laughs> uh, Is it a, at least a rhythmic squelching? Uh, they try sometimes, <laughs> and yeah. then instead of like a, a normal controller, it has these built-in keypads on the system itself, and that's how you control it. Which makes <laughs> sense when you remember that it came from sort of this computer background, mm. uh, and when you look at the design of you know the dedicated uh, home systems that can only play like Pong or whatever, and those all had controls built into them. Mm. But uh, in a world where you're competing with the Channel F and the Atari VCS, which have these breakout controllers. Uh, it's it's a weird choice. Mm-hmm. So, and, and it uses the 1802 processor, which is based off of, you know, Fred, sort of the evolution of the 1801 that they had in arcade machines. And it's, you know, it's fine, but it's not super fast compared to, mm. you know, the 6502 that Atari used or the... Uh, the F8 that Fairchild used. So, but and does, like, would that limit the programmer, or does that affect the the end user's experience? Uh, it more affects the programmer. Uh, okay. yeah. It makes certain games uh, less suitable for the system. Uh, mm-hmm. I talked to Andy Modla about this, and he was telling me that uh, you know 
the first game he tried to make was a little space shooting game where you and to a second player flew UFOs around and shot at each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he's like, yeah, it didn't really work very well because the processor isn't super fast. So they kind of move pokily around the screen. Um, he did a few other games that he felt worked a lot better, like uh, blackjack and pinball. Mm. So, you know, the system was good for certain kinds of games. Uh, mm-hmm. I just don't know that they were to be particular kinds of games that, you know, people who were buying home games were into at the time because mm-hmm. again at the you know up until fairly recently video games at home were basically for kids and a lot of these games were either educational games for kids mm-hmm. uh which you know, at the time they thought would be fine but everyone made that mistake you know having a poor educational game mm-hmm. or they were for adults <laughs> and you know, adults weren't buying these things quite in the same uh, capacity Mm-hmm. So I think that all worked against it. Uh, the people who did buy it seemed to like it well enough, like based on their uh, information back that they sent oh. in on the registration mm-hmm. cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, granted, that's probably a biased sample since they liked it enough to send back a registration <laughs> card. But but yeah, it ended up uh, uh, in February 78, uh, RCA ended up killing the studio too. Um <laughs> They halted their plans for the Studio 3 follow-up, which was going to have proper sound and color mm. uh, mm-hmm. based on, you know, documents at the library and, you know, contemporary reporting in sort of the trade periodicals. Mm-hmm. Uh, it looks like RCA licensed out the Studio 3 and all their Studio 2 stuff to a company in Hong Kong called Conic, and they ended up publishing it overseas like not in the u.s but in europe mm-hmm. and australia and asia hmm. uh, so it, it did still make it out which is you know that's something uh, they also killed the studio four project which is going to be like their next generation leap hmm. um, and you have some documentation about that uh, we've gotten that working in emulators too based on the technical uh, specs and the couple of the schematics and the os code operating system and that sort of thing and actually, on this last visit to the library, mm-hmm. I found the you know basic computer language interpreter for the Studio 4. And we were able to implement that into that emulator. Oh, wow. So now one could conceivably bake their own Studio 4 programs. Wow. Or a machine that never came out. I mean, this is a kind of um, digital archaeology. Yeah. That's uh, fantastic. Yeah, it's really it's really been fun and rewarding work so far, and mm. there's still more to dig into. I did not make it through everything I'd hoped to with last <laughs> time I visited. Are your uh, emulators available online or yes. to the public? Uh, if you look up uh, Emma Zero Two, so that's E M M A Zero Two, uh, it should bring up the website that you can download it from. Mm. It's got. Uh, it's got all the emulators for the various, you know, Fred, 1801, 1802 platforms that have been made over the years. Uh, and it includes a bunch of, you know, programs on there. So you can just load them up through that. Right. It's really cool. Yeah. Um, and there's still more to do because <laughs> on this last visit, I found a bunch of uh, programs that, you know, were type in 
code. Uh-huh. So you have to like type in uh, stuff either on the emulator or the actual hardware. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have not done that yet because that is time consuming, but mm. you know, that's at least another you know, dozen or so <laughs> games and you know, other such programs. So that'll be fun. That's great. And, and what other plans do you have for the future of your project? Uh, so my ultimate goal is to put all this together into a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've already done a couple of videos uh, on YouTube from, mm-hmm. on my uh, YouTube channel, Atari Archive. Uh, and those are about uh, RCA based on the research I pulled together from you know going to Hagley at those points in time. I've since found more since I did either of those videos. Um, I also gave a talk uh, at MAGFest about this in 2019 hmm. uh, alongside uh, Florencia Pieri, who at the time was the curator of the Sarnoff collection at uh, the College of New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was also very well received. And you can find that on YouTube as well. Oh, that's great. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I want to mm-hmm. do a book. So that's what I'm working on right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why I keep digging through your archives. That's why I'm trying to track down as many surviving people who are associated with any of these projects as I can and interview them. I've already gotten through uh, six or seven people uh, just working on a next batch and hopefully tracking down some more after that. Yeah. Oral history seems like a really great method uh, for this project. Yeah. Cause you know, the documentation is a great primary source, uh, Mm -hmm. but there's going to be gaps and it's nice to have people who can fill in those gaps. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, Nothing in the paperwork talks about uh, how Joe Weisbecker didn't like uh, color and he didn't <laughs> like uh, to use a lot of memory, although you can kind of infer that based on his writing. Hmm. Uh, but if you talk to the people who worked with him uh, and on these projects, they're like, oh, yeah, that's that was Joe. That's how he <laughs> took, looked at things. Uh, and there's other things that didn't really make it in there. Like uh, I talked to. Uh, one fellow, Paul Russo, and he was telling me how the original Fred uh, only had eight switches on it, and that's how you input programs or <laughs> operated programs. Mm. And apparently, it was very time consuming. So, one of the first things he did on the project was build um, a hex keypad <laughs> of like 16 keys so you could uh-huh. type stuff in much, much quicker. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, th- that's the surviving Fred unit uh, that you, know, you can see up at tcnj uh mm. but in your photo archives there is a photo of the original fred with its switches <laughs> mm. uh, that would not have been recognized or identified until uh, i'd gotten that bit of information from an oral history so right so it's very useful for identifying things that i have questions about in the archive i wonder uh whether you have um you might draw any implications for the present day from your research. Um, a sort of a two-part question here, whether um, what you've observed about the evolution of the past of video games shed some light on the current state of video games, um, and also about digital preservation, about give it 50 or 100 years, successive generations of people doing the type of work you're doing, what could we do today to make their future work easier? Mm. So I guess uh, in your first question, that's a, that's a very good one. Uh, I'd say that uh, I think it's very clear that success is not necessarily 
based on who got there first or uh, uh-huh. who had the you know best hardware specs or whatever it's part of it is definitely going to be based on whether or not it's got the you know the game company or whatever is supporting their their software or hardware as well as mm. they could be because i think that was a big problem for rca is mm. yeah the system was a little delayed and it was not uh it didn't exactly hold up to the competition super well but yeah, it's a perfectly fine machine <laughs> uh, it could have probably lasted on the market for a couple more years mm. um but the company wasn't interested in it and it just mm. got killed off Mm-hmm. Uh, Fairchild, uh, they were kind of interested in it, but they were also very burned from, uh, you know, the many home appliance fads at the time, like uh, CB radios or calculators <laughs> or digital watches. And so they were very conservative with the Channel F and that in terms uh-huh. of like production numbers. Mm-hmm. And then they ran into problems in other parts of their market and ended up closing down anyway. Uh, but Atari supported the heck out of their system. They had, you know, Warner Brothers owning the company, so they had money. Mm. And they basically just kept pushing their stuff out there until mm. it really made a dent and became a real success. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you still kind of see that uh, to an extent today, although I think uh, for as far as the hardware manufacturers go, they definitely take uh, different uh, approaches to their markets they're i think they're aiming for different niches Hmm. uh and that's something else that uh probably would have helped rca a little bit better is if they had tried targeting a different market than Mm -hmm. uh, the other companies were like maybe they should have aimed more for adults and uh tried to get more games of that nature in there maybe Mm -hmm. they should have aimed more for uh arcade style games even if the machine was not ideally suited for them but you know hindsight being what it is (laughs) Mm -hmm. the gift Um, of the historian yeah uh as far as digital preservation goes you know i i think the most useful things that uh, can be done now is you know getting in touch with as many people as possible who were there at the time and are willing to discuss their role in it um trying to get you know materials digitized and put into physical archives like the Hagley. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know there's a few institutions that are doing that kind of work uh, in making their materials available for researchers, which is fantastic. Um, But, uh, you know, it's kind of tricky because a lot of uh, game history, like preservation that's been done so far has essentially been piracy (laughs) because the industry has not really... uh, cared about it much mm-hmm. up to until fairly recently uh so you know it's people finding old uh unreleased materials and you know pulling the data out and putting mm-hmm. that online or it's people who dumpster dove for documentation that the companies didn't keep because they were closing mm-hmm. up or moving locations it's that sort of thing um and that's where a lot of this stuff uh, has come from Mm-hmm. But, you know, I don't know that that's necessarily sustainable in the long term. It would be nice if the industry in general would, you know, take a, a more mindful approach to how they mm-hmm. preserve things. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I think those are the keys. Uh, 
know, we want to have documentation if at all possible. I understand it's not always possible. Uh, we want to have people who can uh, put that in context. Uh, that's mm. part of why I want to do this book is that I mm -hmm. want to have that uh, record available to people in the future, like have some foundational research done uh, into RCA here. So maybe in a hundred years, uh, they might have more material than I did at the time, or maybe they won't, but uh, they can at least look at what I've put together and say, okay, well, here's what we know about RCA. This guy put it all together. We can uh, infer from there. And if we can access any of the actual documentation, we can, that's, that's good. Mm -hmm. So, and, and that's the magic of, of, uh, of research. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's worked out elsewhere. Like I haven't just been working on RCA. I've worked on some other companies as well. And uh, mm -hmm. like Bally, uh, like the company behind the Bally health clubs uh -huh. back in the seventies, they, right. you know, owned video game uh, company Midway and they had mm -hmm. a home game system and, you know, it was unsuccessful. Barely anyone bought it. Uh -huh. uh, they sold it off to another company that struggled on its own and then went out of business in 83. But uh, you know, the people who really were into that system saved so much of the documentation. They saved a lot of like user programs. Uh -huh. uh, and those are all online now. And mm. when I'm doing my research, I can refer back to these things that people saved, you know, 20, 10 years ago. Mm. Um you know, probably not thinking much of it other than like, oh, it'll be cool to have these online right. uh, and, you know, eventually into a physical archive. But uh, so, yeah, and, you know, you never know. <laughs> yeah. And it, it could, because as time passes, a new significance becomes evident. Yeah. Uh, mm. Like in, you know, the 90s or early 2000s, I don't know anyone would have looked at, you know, these Bally user programs that were being done <laughs> and sold through basic, uh, as uh, anything more than a curiosity but you look at it today it's like oh well this is, was the early days of indie video games oh sure these were the, these were early indie developers you know just <laughs> figuring out their machines and selling amongst each other mm. that's, that's super cool absolutely <sighs> well kevin thank you so much for speaking with me today and uh, sharing your project Thank you. Uh, I look forward to, you know, digging into your archives more and uh, letting you know when I have a <laughs> finished uh, book on this. <laughs> I, I look forward to it. And to the audience, um, if you would like more Hagley History Hangouts or more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, visit us online at hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. And uh, don't be a stranger. <laughs>